Amen. We may be seated again. Welcome to Mercy Fellowship, where we're saved by Jesus' work. We are changed by Jesus' grace, and we are living on Jesus' mission. And that means that we believe that we exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ who love God and who love people. And so what we, what we do each week is we gather together, we sing God's praises, and we open up God's word, uh, we talk about it, we take communion, remembering Jesus' work for us. Um, and, and, you know, if, if you call us church home, you give your tithes and offerings, and, and if you don't, then, 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 then they'll have the cookies and the coffee. Okay, right, they're not for you. Um, and so, no, we're just, we're, we're glad you guys are here. Uh, and all fall, we've been working through this series in the book of First Thessalonians called Thrive, Flourishing and Faithfulness. And in this series, it's, it's based on a letter that a pastor, a church planter named Paul, um, who, who helped plant the church in a city called Thessalonica, that he writes to them after he has uh, left and departed and kind of left the leadership team and, and, and he's starting to hear reports on how they're doing and he wants to encourage them on the ways uh, that they've been faithful and he wants to exhort them to, to grow in different areas so they can experience greater flourishing, greater thriving. And so for three chapters, halfway through this letter, basically, he has laid out how they've been faithful, the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ, what the gospel is, all of, all of these uh, aspects of what does it mean to be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. And, and he has such pastoral love and affection for them that after laying out what is true about God, he begins to shift the letter at the point that we are today to begin to talk about, okay, if God is for you, if God has created you, if God has created you good and sin has entered and there's brokenness and reconciliation is needed that comes through Jesus, what does restoration look like? What does a life lived in response to being known and loved by God, to having faith in Jesus, to turn from sin, to walk in faithfulness? And the order of that matters, that we'll see in, in, in just a second here. And so he begins to talk about things we don't like to talk about in our culture or things we love to talk about in our culture and just do it in a way that's not always God. And so today, if this is your first Sunday, welcome to Faithful Sexuality. That's where we're at. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. I'm going to break out 1 through 8 into three sections. We're going to talk about, there's going to be good news here. I know there's kids here, so I'll try to keep it PG as much as possible. But here we are, First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Paul writing to this church and to these believers that he loves dearly. Finally then, meaning he's kind of beginning, you know, his, his conclusion of this letter. Finally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you. In the Lord Jesus, that as you received from us, how you ought to walk, meaning how you live out your life, and to please God just as you're doing, and that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Let's just stop here. So as we said, the church has received clear teaching about doctrine, what is true about God. And now he's going to say, I want to give you clear teaching about practice. How do you live according to the gospel? And so it's not enough for us to say, hey, we're Christians because we talk about Jesus. 
But we're, we've shared with you the gospel, the good news of God saving people through Jesus. Because there's news that you hear, you're like, oh, that's nice, I've heard that. And there's news that you hear that impacts the way you live your life from now on. Like, our relationship with the news changed very dramatically from February 2020 to March of 2020. Can we agree? Too soon? Everybody still a little PTSD on that? Right? It used to be, oh, I hear the news. That's interesting. I didn't know we had a governor. You know, like, okay, whatever. And then all of a sudden, oh, I've got to watch the news each day to figure out what I'm going to be upset about. Okay, right? And how I'm going to live and who's going to be mad at me today and all that. At least that's how it will for me and my family. So... News, though, has to change the way you live if it's going to be transformative news. And so he said, I told you about a God who met you where you're at, in whatever spiritual condition you're in, who loves you and pursues you in Jesus Christ, who's now made you new. And so he said, now, now let's go ahead and walk out and live out life as a new creation. That your past life, your past sin no longer defines you. It, it may describe you, but it doesn't define you. What defines you now is your relationship with Jesus, and now you should live out a new life that looks like someone who knows and loves and has been saved by Jesus. See, I think at times we have a faulty view of God's grace that says he blesses us as we continually walk in disobedience. Yes, God's mercy is sufficient it's more than sufficient to cover anything that looks like sin or disobedience. But God's grace is also effective to help empower you, empower me, and empower us to live out some new lives that we've been called to. And so sometimes as Christians, even, we get afraid to talk about how should we now live, whether it's finances or sexuality or anything in between, because we don't want to get labeled by other Christians as, oh, you're legalistic. And we certainly don't want to be labeled phobic about anything by the world. Because, oof, I don't, I don't, I don't want to be that. And so what happens then is, is we can avoid things that are actually, yeah, they can be challenging, they can be convicting, not condemning, but they can actually empower us and lead us to greater flourishing life. And so this letter, like so many others in the New Testament, starts again with, with what's true about God and then transitions to how do we now live? And so if you miss that, if you, if you get instructions before the announcement, then you're going to get it wrong. Because you're going to think, okay, I better clean up myself, or I better, I better fix whatever I've done wrong here. I better feel really, really bad about whatever I've done wrong here. And if, if I do that, then God will be happy with me. And then now I can be in communion with other Christians. Now I can be in communion with God. And he said, no, 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 no. I spent three chapters reminding you you are beloved. Three chapters remind you God's word is powerful and you received it and it transformed who you were at the very soul level and it changed your destiny for today and also for eternity. So, so now we can talk about the things. That's where he's at. But if we get that wrong, then anything I'm about to say around sexuality will end up feeling like a millstone as opposed to a call from Jesus to take off the burden that's either been placed on you by sin that's done to you or that you have been carrying because of sin you've committed yourself. This is a good news verse here. These are good news verses here. Because he said, hey, you guys are growing in God's word. You love one another. 
And he goes, I want to see you grow more and more in these instructions that you've been given. And so they have knowledge of what's true and right about life in Christ, but they need a, a refreshing. They, they need a bit of a refreshing because they're prone to wander. Because this Thessalonian church, you know, it was planted in a Greco-Roman, Greek and Roman context. It was very much like where we live today and how we live today. And so they're living lives that are in some regards set apart from the culture, still have to engage in the culture. And sometimes, man, the culture meaning the, the, the world opposed to God in this case. But like, the culture is so overwhelming, it's so stifling, that, man, you just go a little crazy town at certain points. Because you get all these different voices in your head. You say, let me remind you what's true and right. You and I, we, we need reminders about what is true because every single day in every pop song, in every TV show, in every reel, uh, in every post, like, we are hearing and inundated with so many sermons about what's true, let alone our own challenges in our own heart. And so he's saying, I want to cut through the noise. When, when the world gets louder, it's a call for us to be reminded of what's true so that we can have hearts that are oriented properly. Because our hearts are prone to wander. So he repeats things because he knows we need this refresher. So he says this now in the more challenging verses this morning. Verses 3 through 6 say this. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. We'll talk about that. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control uh, his own body or, or to take a spouse in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in the matter, because the Lord's an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. And so this is, this is difficult, right? This is challenging. Except he doesn't just say, hey, there's some, I got some issues with you people. There's some things you've been doing wrong. No, he's actually already said, hey, you guys have been faithful in some ways. Keep going. And he says, hey, by the way, I want to remind you, before we talk about your individual life, before we talk about the things you've done, the things done to you, the things you wrestle with, he's like, let me tell you what God's will is. God's will for you is your sanctification. And that's a word we don't use very often, but it's a word that means looking more and more like Jesus. There's an aspect of holiness. There's an aspect of set-apartness. There's an aspect of growth and flourishing and thriving in the way you've been designed, in the way that God intends for you. And so he said, God's will for you is actually to thrive in a way that aligns with his design and his direction. That as disciples of Jesus, you've been called by God, and you're also changed by God. That faith in Jesus is a recognition that, that can we just be clear, all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God? If you're like, ooh, I was a really good person until I got married, and now I'm a great person, and I but some people around here have done some pretty bad things. Like, no, no, this, this is a, a call for humility for all of us. Because the Bible is really clear, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
If I haven't done that one thing, that one ball just rejected, or all of them rejected. Like, I've done that one Jesus, like, I'm skipping way ahead and here. Jesus raises the bar on sexual morality and says, Y'all are talking about adultery, let me tell you, if you've lusted in your heart, same thing. All of a sudden now, all of us have things we need to work out. All of us have sin that needs to be dealt with. And he's saying God's will for you is, again, not for you to be defined by your sin, but to be defined by what Jesus has done in your place in your life, and to be described not as walking in sin, but walking more and more like Jesus, who is tempted in every way that you and I were. I think we skip over that sometimes. Tempted in every way that you or I have ever been tempted, and yet is without sin. They say, hey, you, you're a new creation. The Bible says if your faith is in Christ, the old is gone, the new has come. You're not the person you were before. And so he says, you can now live like you're new. And you're like, really new? Like, like I, I mean, do you, do you want to know what my body count is? Do you want to know the things I've done? He's like, no, new. That's not who you are anymore. You're someone new in Christ. And so he does all this. The signification is for your joy. Holiness is for our joy. To be set apart and clean means you know, there's going to be things that you no longer walk in. And so when, when he talks about what your new life is in Christ, God's will for you being sanctification, the first place he goes is it, well, anyways, to get your finances in order and start tithing. Or, hey, you might want to run your business a little bit differently. Or have you thought about what you are as an employee? Or what's your voting record look like? And maybe you should think about your political engagement. Like, let's be clear. The gospel impacts every single one of those things. But he starts with, before you think about anything else, the big eye chart, the big two-by-four in your eye sin that you're going to have to deal with, that I have to deal with, that we have to deal with as Christians is our sexuality. Because it matters to God. Because he's designed us a certain way. He's designed sexuality a certain way. He's made our bodies a certain way. And he's made us in his image and likeness. And so and he's made us holistic people, mind, body, and soul. So yeah, we've got to change the way we Look at the world. We better change the way we think. We better change the way we do. But man, your and my body matters. He, he'll tell the Corinthian church that's really screwed up in their sexuality that you are not your own. You were bought with a price, he says. She said, the answer for that being, or the reason for that being, you've been bought by a price by Jesus. The blood of Jesus paid for you to be new. He said, so now honor God with your body. So our sexuality absolutely matters to God. And he lays out in these verses three key areas to a hostile and confused culture around what does faithful sexuality look like? What does flourishing sexuality look like? Number one, the number one thing he says is this. You got three points here. Number one, abstain from sexual immorality. You and I have been flowing in for our entire lifetime some aspect of the sexual revolution for the last 60 years. And out of that has led divorcing culture from any sort of biblical standards around sexuality. And 
It has gone lightning quick in the last 10, 15 years. Whereas we've gotten divorced from that, untethered from what God's design and will is for sexuality, our culture has gotten more hostile, more confused. And I will tell you, the outcomes have not been Shangri-La. It has not been like levels of human happiness in the West are not at all-time highs, guys. Like, we are so starved for something that seems interesting that we're like, T-Swizzle and Travis Kelsey, hooray! Like, we're just excited about that? Maybe, um, I think it's fake. That's just me. Okay. We're so starved for anything that looks like joy, that looks like flourishing. And part of it's because we've divorced ourselves from God's design for us. And so we, we love words like sexual freedom, sexual expression, sexual orientation, sexual identity. And words you don't hear in our culture are sexual immorality. Because we don't tie those two together anymore. Because we say, no, the only thing immoral, the only thing that culturally can be considered a sin is to not affirm, champion, applaud, allow, encourage somebody else from doing whatever the heck they feel like at that given moment. But that's not the way you and I were designed. Because it buys into a whole bunch of different lies about how we use our bodies, about how they're designed, about how our bodies and souls interact. And so we have to define sexual immorality in a biblical way. It's the word pornonia, uh, and, it, and it means any kind, of, it's clear, any kind of sexual relationship outside of marriage between a man and a woman. You're like, that sounds so... Like 1950s, or like, I don't know, TV in the early 90s, when there's still a mom and dad, and like everything's kind of happy for a while. This has been the design from the beginning. Like, if you read, if you read your Bible, anyway, like, like the Bible begins with God creating men and women, creating them, like, like distinct and different, equal in his eyes, complementary for one another. And one of the first things that happen is God performs a wedding. This is my daughter. This is, oh, don't say it gets weird. Okay. Like, he performs a wedding between the man and the woman. He says, man, it's not good for you to be alone. And he makes a woman. And, and they were, it says they were naked and unashamed. And then sin enters the world and separation happens. And you find yourself a few chapters in. And man, uh, like, if you're like, there's this stuff, guys, that we don't talk about in Mercy Kids in Genesis. Okay? Right? Because it just, you're like, that's weird. That's funky. And occasionally, you have like a major, like a kind of you know, antagonistic friend. Oh, you're a Christian? Yeah. Well, what about these guys not part of the Bible? And you can be like, yeah, they were wise this and shouldn't have done that. It's not the way the Bible prescribes it. Oh, Abraham had a bunch of wives. Yeah, and he was in sin because he was like going against God's will on a bunch of different ways. I mean, goodness gracious, the list of things you end up with rape, prostitution, incest, uh, all sorts of horrible things that happen in the, the first several chapters of the Bible, is all the result of human sin, not God's design. And so we have to define sexual immorality. It includes fornication, sex before marriage, adultery, sex outside of marriage, homosexuality, sex with someone of the same gender, self-gratification, things that our culture still says is illegal, thankfully, rape, prostitution, and incest, and also things that our culture has no issue with, which is lust. All of that falls under the basket of he's saying, that is what you, as a new creation, are called to abstain from. And right away, there was a whole bunch of those things on that list where you're like, oh, wait, that's me. Or I've done that. Or I thought that, or I felt that. Is there a place for me in the kingdom? 
And the answer is, if we find our identity in our sexuality, and that's our primary identity, then we have our orientation off. The orientation that we're called to is to have our identity in what Jesus has done for us. Now, the Bible describes you as a new creation, your identity, who your, the very depth of your being is found in Christ, who he is and what he's done for you. God's word has so much to say on this, I mean, just through sexual morality and sexuality in general, but to, to be simplified a little bit, we're either going to worship our sexuality as a God or we're going to receive it as a gift from God. And those are very different things. Our heart orientation matters. Anything, anything outside of those boundaries of, of the, 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 the context that God has created sexuality to be in, marriage between a man and a woman, the culture that he has designed, one of fidelity, anything outside of that. Like, don't let anybody in a, in a clerical collar or in a vestment tell you, that, oh, no, God's cool with it. Because if they're saying that, they're not getting that from God's word. It's not what God's word teaches. Um, I think sometimes, though, there, I don't think there's be well-meaning when this happens, but our society has gotten so confused sexually that we recognize that, sex, that sexuality, that when, when uh, expressed improperly, causes shame. Right? You've had something done to you. You've been abused. You feel shame. You've done something. Like, wrong. like you, you need to feel some shame. And so society's answer for that hasn't been to actually deal with your shame. It's been to tell you you didn't do anything shameful. But then nothing shameful has happened to you. And it leaves us in places of despair. Because God sees our shame. God knows your shame. God's answer for your shame and my shame is what Jesus did for us on the cross. I repeat this often, but I mean, Hebrews 12, like Jesus said, for the joy set before him, he despised the shame he endured the cross. Again, so you and I don't have to be defined by what we've done or what's been done to us. That's the gospel answer for shame. Where society has gone, let's just make all sexuality shameless. Jeremiah 8, 12 talks about it this way. Were they ashamed when they committed abominations? No, they were not a little ashamed. They didn't even know how to blush. I think that's where our culture might find itself, perhaps. I will tell you, as somebody who's walked in sexual sin before following Jesus, the scariest points of my life were when I could engage in sexual activity and not feel shame about it. And I praise God even for that, like, that, that, that warning light of, Whoa, 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 your conscience knows this is wrong, but you're cool with it right now? That was God's grace to me. To say, this is a well you are drinking from that will not quench the thirst you have in your soul. Come drink from, some, from a well that's actually refreshing. And so if we're going to begin to thrive as disciples, it means that we need to end walking in sexual morality and sin. And, and, and there's certain things that have to be more than just avoided or and they have to be fully abstained from. And so, I mean, these Thessalonians, I mean, they're regularly being inundated with, with op 
opportunities to revert and rebel. I mean, this, uh, we talked about it a little bit last week around God's word. Like, they're going about the marketplace. They're going to the festivals. They're living out their lives. Everyone's like, hey, I used to see you at the temple with all the temple workers. Why aren't you there anymore, Bill? Well, I'm a Christian now. Well, that sounds lame. Just you and the wife, huh? And it's like, like, they, like this was the stuff that they were dealing with. Literally, was the stuff they were dealing with. Theologian F.F. Bruce says it this way. I think we, we play this really ridiculous game called, well, the Bible's sexuality was great for Bible times, but we are way more free and wise now. No. F.F. Bruce, theologian, talks about marriage in the day in Thessalonica, and he says it this way. The marriage culture of that day, it was not uncommon for a married man to have a mistress who could provide him with intellectual companionship. Slavery meant he could have a concubine a living woman who can provide for him with physical companionship, cohabitates, and then casual gratification was available. There was also temple harlots. The function of the wife was to manage his household and be the mother of his legitimate children and heirs. So the Thessalonian culture, at least with the guys, it was still like kind of harem time. And we're like, oh, no, we don't, we don't do that anymore. Some of us have harems in our phones and harems in our head. And he's saying, you are a new creation. You don't need to walk that way anymore. To abstain from sexual immorality is not a rejection of like, you know, pleasure island and all of a sudden your life's going to be terrible and sexual isolation. No, it's saying you are holy, you are set apart, and you will and can and could enjoy God-given sexuality in the, in the context that it's been granted. And so we read something like holiness, and we think it's a bad form of the world. And forget that it's God calling us to greater thriving and flourishing. See, there's man's distortion, but there's also God's good design. And that leads us to point number two. We'll go quicker here. Verses four and five. Point number one was abstain from sexual immorality. Point number two was exercise self-control. Honor over your body. Some translations say control your own body. Other translations say uh, to pursue marriage, okay? So there's different meanings. I, I'm not sure which one's the correct one here, but both can apply. But he's not just saying, hey, stay away from sexual morality. He's also saying, hey, you should practice and live a life of self-control over your body. Maybe for you, sexually, that's fine and not an issue. Maybe there's another area of substance or of food or of sleep or of exercise that you need to control your body with. See, again, this gets back to the fundamental truth that bodies matter to God. And, and like, we can, we can say, oh, no, this is what I do with my body. You know, it's not really my soul or who I am. But, but then, you know, we realize at the soul level, something that, that our bodies, minds, and souls are all interconnected. And that's why, like, like this past week, this past week, like, I've had this love-hate relationship with the news of, like, I want to know what's going on over in Israel, but also don't want to fully know what's going on over in Israel. And so when we see terrorists come and, and abuse women and, and harm children, and we see what's happened to a body, there's a revulsion that happens. Because, like, we know there's a soul in there. 
We know there's a holistic person there, that they're violated, that it should not be so. Bodies matter to God. Because we're in there. He made them for us. So what you do with your body, and what should be done to and with your body, should be holy, should be held in honor. And when that hasn't happened, when you've experienced abuse or someone's harmed you, you feel it at the soul level. So he's saying practice self-control. That there is a context and a culture for marriage. Genesis says it this way, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. As a mixing of souls that is talking about sexuality and marriage. You're like, well, that's Old Testament. Uh, I'm a New Testament Christian. And Jesus never said, oh, 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 Matthew 19, Jesus quotes that directly. He says, this is what marriage and sexuality are to look like. So again, don't play games with anybody that's dressed up like a pastor trying to tell you that we're in a whole new world now. Jesus is cool or whatever you want to do. Jesus reiterated God's design from the beginning. Because if you read John 1, you know he was there at the beginning. He's the word of God. Active in creation. And so we're to live lives in holiness and honor. And so sexuality is designed in marriage for pleasure. Yes, and like that, God designed it to feel good. Like, like God could have had procreation happen in any way possible. And he's like, let's do it this way. Thank you, Lord. And, and also because we're souls mending together, there's intimacy. Because there's times where we're just the difficulty of the world is, is a lot, and, and we're, we're giving comfort through sexuality and marriage because we know that there's somebody in this world that is for us, and I'm for them, and we're not alone. And for protection, there's an enemy that seeks to destroy your marriage and will attempt to use sexuality to undermine your connection and your commitment. And as I said, yeah. Procreation, like this is the way God designed it. And so God's culture of sexuality should be understood and practiced and articulated for what it truly is as something that's beautiful. Because I think Christians get a bad rap for not being sex positive when we worship the creator who made sexuality. And so as Christians, we should uphold and, and embody and, and embrace biblical sexuality unapologetically and tell the world this is where flourishing actually is. That this is in Christ a, a well that can refresh and, and what you're drinking from is, is not going to ultimately lead you to greater flourishing. Number three. Let me say it this way. Let me go back to it real quick. Here, here in, in verse um, five it says, you know, you're going to hold your body in wholeness and honor, not in the passion and lust like Gentiles who do not know God, what he's talking about is, is, is the godless culture they were in in Thessalonica. That Greco-Roman culture, that modern, western, over-sexualized culture. And so here's the other challenge. We should uphold the Christian sexual ethic? Absolutely. In fact, I don't dare, I say, I might get in trouble, but like, like you should maybe like be a proponent of those things. That if there's Laws or politicians or things of that nature. Like I, I think that that 
that could end up leading to greater flourishing in our culture. The challenge is to not somehow become people who on the one hand uphold the Christian sexual ethic and then, and then keep on additional shame on people who already feel shame for their sexuality and stop inviting them to come to the table to experience forgiveness that comes in Jesus Christ. To, to somehow keep on expectations that people who don't know and love and serve Jesus are going to act in a certain way. Early on in ministry, early on um, as, a, as a new believer, um, a lot of non-Christian friends at that time, and some of them were cohabitating with their girlfriends and whatever, and they would come to me and they'd be like, well, hey, you're a Christian now, and you don't do this, and you do this now, and you don't come to the clubs with us anymore, and you don't do these different things. Um, they're like, I'm sleeping with my girlfriend, and we're living together. Like, like, what do you think about that? And I was like, why are you even asking me? That's between you and God. And I, I want you to love and serve and know Jesus. I don't want you to feel prideful because you've got your sexuality right. I want, we should want people to know and love and serve Jesus, to be known and loved by Jesus through the gospel, and then watch their lives empowered by the Holy Spirit be transformed to walk out new lives. And so it's like, it's not what Chris thinks about things. This is what God's word teaches about things. And so, like, can we just maybe not expect or not be shocked when a godless world act, doesn't act in godly ways? But rather we should both mourn and pray and invite and encourage and practice hospitality and speak truth and invite and love and let God through his word and the Holy Spirit do the heavy lifting. Don't expect the godless culture to act godly. All right, third point. Because maybe you're like, okay, he says abstain from sexual immorality, practice, hold your body in self-control, um, you know, honor and holiness. You know, but, but why? Like, is there a cost here to this otherwise? Number three, sexual immorality is not harmless. See, there's this lie that our actions are ours alone. They don't impact others. That's just what I do with my body. Or we're two consenting uh, adults, so like, what does it matter what we do together? We believe wrongly that how we live our sexuality doesn't have an impact on others. Um, and Paul here in these verses says, a good and right motive for fleeing sexual immorality, he says in verse 6, that no one transgresses or wrongs his brother in this matter. He said, hey, how you practice your sexuality will impact others. It'll impact it in your marriage. It'll impact it in your family. It'll impact it in your church community. It'll impact it in the world at large. There's, like, there's just no aspect of sin that stays self-contained. You're like, oh, I just, I just kind of do some things on, on my own. Oh, so you're feeding an industry that is all about human trafficking and exploitation? There are downstream consequences where people are being harmed through that? That... You practice adultery, it's going to impact your marriage. You practice fornication, it's going to impact your sexuality as you go into your marriage. I mean, again, nothing we can or have done sexually or have done to us is beyond the grace and mercy of God. That the cross of Jesus Christ is more than sufficient. His blood atoning for our sins, his blood cleansing our sins and those that have been done to us, like none of us would be out of God's grace. 
His grace is sufficient. But don't believe the lie that somehow your sin won't have some consequences and impact other people. So when there's people posing as pastors, telling you that you can be affirmed in whatever activities or orientations you have or want, in this culture, in this culture, that's not courageous activism. That is cowardly capitulation. And ultimately, they are not helping anyone. Because God's design is for flourishing, holiness, joy. And when we say, no, 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 go ahead and just keep walking in your sin, you're telling people, you're telling people that God's grace is efficient to have to transform them. Again, if someone has sexual sin in their past, and if I was told, hey, God's grace, you're going to go to heaven when you die, and kind of got that point. But I was like, I need this area of my life fixed because it is impacting the way I engage with other people. I need the shame dealt with. I need to walk in holiness and faithfulness so I'm going to get to enjoy a, a, a marriage relationship. I believe God and his Holy Spirit is powerful enough to break chains of sexual sin, regardless of what they are. And, and I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen. We've met who've been in homosexual relationships for a couple decades. We said, man, I, I was an alcoholic. I went to AA. They told me about a higher power. I knew who the higher power was because my parents you know, were involved in church. Dead out of following Jesus now. I have to turn from that relationship. And that was hard. And, and, and for, the, for this guy, like, he was like, well, so I guess I figured that, you know, God bless me, and like, in a year I'll be married to a woman, and, have kids. and it just didn't work out that way. But he said, oh, I need to be faithful to the God who saved me. God changes people. The Holy Spirit changes people. And we know that's true. We know that's true because of these last verses here. We're going to bring things to a close. It says this. 7 through 8. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God. This is key, guys. This isn't a throwaway phrase. Who gives his Holy Spirit to you. I'm not telling you that if you are going to flee from sexual sin or, or sexual immorality, that you just white knuckling it, just trying hard, is going to make it go better. What I can tell you is by God's grace, we can and are empowered by the Holy Spirit for conviction of sin, for comfort in the gospel, and empowered to walk out new lives of sexual purity no longer defined by what you've done or what's been done to you, but by what Jesus has done for you. See, sexual sin, like any sin, has a staining effect, and I would just hate for somebody to come in here today and think, okay, I'm stained, I'm dirty. Gosh, it's just another conservative, you know, male, middle-aged pastor talking about sex. I feel terrible now. No, my, my hope for you, whether you know that you I'm chief of sinners, just, just like you are. 
Now, I need God's grace just as much as you do, just as much as, as any of us do. That all, all Jesus can do, the only people he can save are sexual sinners. Because like I said, everybody's lusting at some point. We're all in the same boat. We all need God's grace. We all need his mercy. And so, I just encourage you to know the good news that no sexual sin is too great to not be covered by the cross or so small that it doesn't warrant God's judgment. And when the world will tell you that, no, no, you keep walking in sin, we'll give you a stripe on a flag. Do you feel honored now? No, we worship Jesus Christ, who it says by his stripes we are healed. And that means at the soul level. And that means in our sexuality. And that means for eternity. That's the offer of the gospel. To actually experience healing and wholeness. As we take communion, we remember that Jesus Christ on the cross had his body dishonored. His holy body dishonored. Being abused and bloodied and beaten and suffering death. So that whatever you've done with your body or had done to your body, you can experience and embody and embrace the righteousness and holiness of God. That you can be made clean. That you can be made new. And you can walk in freedom and flourishing and joy. Whether you're single, widowed, divorced, wrestling with same-sex attraction, whatever you're doing, God's future grace has greater things in store for you. His present provision can give you freedom today and hope for eternity. If you would just simply trust Jesus. Let's pray.